welcome to the monthly podcast of Going to Seed. I'm Joseph Lofthouse. I have Holly Hansen here. I'd like to thank Anna Merritts for running our technical stuff in the background. And we expect to have this on Facebook in a month or so. So check back with us then as well. Dr. Shane Simonson is a former biochemist who ran away to the hills of subtropical Australia to become an experimental farmer. He writes weekly about his efforts at developing zero input agriculture at Substack. In his spare time, he writes science fiction as Haldane B. Doyle. His debut novel, Our Vitreous Womb, explores a distant future where society has rebuilt using purely biological technology. Now, I have been following Shane's work for, I don't know, years and years. We've participated in a lot of forums together about plant breeding. And I am thoroughly enamored with the work that he does and really looking forward to this conversation. So welcome, Shane. Well, thank you. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. So tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to be a plant breeder and what you were before you were plant breeding and all that kind of good stuff. Yeah, yeah. So I, I grew up in, in subtropical Australia, right on the beach. And I was lucky to have very tolerant parents who indulged my passion for biology. So I grew every weird plant that I could get my hands on. I kept octopi and mantis shrimps and jumping spiders and just everything, everything. And I planned on becoming a botanist, but I diverted into biochemistry instead on the advice of one of the few full-time botanical taxonomists who I made friends with in, in the area. And I don't know, may, maybe life would have turned out differently if I'd gone that way, but I've, I've ended up on this experimental farm after going through a PhD and being a teacher for a while. And I just got very, very lucky in being able to buy a, a relatively large chunk of land, not too late in life. Like I'm, I'm in my mid forties now. So that gives me the opportunity to do these kind of experiments with security, particularly the tree breeding. Not many people get a large enough chunk of land early enough in their life that they can even contemplate breeding trees. I, I know what it is like to start breeding trees when you're in your 50s, so good for you. I'm only a little bit ahead of you, but yeah, I hope to get at least one generation done on the project, but we'll talk about that in more detail as we get through things. Yeah, so so how did you go from that sort of background into, I mean, what was going on with your science <laughs> career that, that caused you to be a farmer? I mean, so. <laughs> So I was doing a postdoc in Canberra, which is like the cold, high altitude part of Australia. And I was, I started doing a, a gardening service on the weekends for neighbours because I was so bored, like there's not much to do in this little town. And I was looking forward to that more than actually going to the lab and just watching reactions stir all day long. That was around the same time as the global financial crisis as well. And I'd been following peak oil and like, is it happening? Is it real? Do these people know what they're talking about? And I was, the combination of all of those things, I'm like, let's live life differently. Let's let's do something that you actually find meaning in. And yeah, moved with my parents up to a higher altitude part of the Southeast Queensland where it's subtropical, back to my homeland. And through living with them, I managed to be in the right place at the right time when an old farmer decided to sell his block that was a neighbor of my parents. So it all just kind of lined up perfectly. But you have to be open to these possibilities in life for them to come to you. You have to go through periods where not much seems to be going on, where you've got that space to say yes to something new, to something big. And does your biochemistry degree inform how you do your plant breeding these days? Uh, a little bit, but uh -huh. I do things in a very, very low tech way. It, Probably this goes further back. So one of the plants that I collected when I was a teenager were, do you know, stapeliads, the starfish flowers? They're, they're like a five-petaled flower that imitates carrion. 
So they're these like they stink <laughs> and they look they look like a rhinoceros's butthole basically, and they're fly pollinated. So they've got a really complicated pollination mechanism. And I went through the process of teaching myself how to pollinate these things by hand, like little tiny microscopic tweezers and looking at things under microscopes. And I eventually figured out how to do that. And that set me up now for when I want to learn to pollinate like potatoes or beans or something. It's like, oh, piece of cake. I've got to, I, I have that sense of just having a go and like figuring it out for yourself. And I think that is beaten out of kids in school and people need to be encouraged to just try, to just try growing something. If it works, fine. If it doesn't, try something else. Don't be afraid to destroy a few flowers while you're figuring out how they work. And if you want to go down the hand pollinating route, not, not everyone has to. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there's just so many possibilities for, particularly I work on novel crops and orphan crops because I live in a climate where the temperate stuff mostly doesn't work. So I have to look at, similar climates around the world and just find things to adapt to my conditions yeah so so tell us about what your conditions are like how much space do you have what your soil's like that yep, kind of yep. stuff. so it's it's a 40 acre farm but it's mostly low hills which isn't great for cropping so i save the bulk of the farm for my tree crops and my goats i've got a little goat herd there's only about half an acre that's flat near the house that i use for vegetables and it has a relatively thin soil being at the top of the hill. Down on the creek flats, we've also got a few acres of relatively silty soil. It's still not great by like international standards, but Australia has pretty crappy soil in general because it's such an old continent. We didn't get any glaciation. All the minerals have been washed out of the soil. So yeah, there's there's a, a bit of a challenge there. But if you keep looking until you find the things that like the soil that you have, then you make life a lot easier for yourself. And yeah, the soil, it's a cracking clay and I had it tested and normally you have twice as much calcium as magnesium. We're the other way around. It's more magnesium than calcium, which is quite unusual. And a lot of plants that come from like limestone regions, they just sit there and blink at you. They like absolutely refuse to grow. So what kind of water do you have there? Um, So we don't have town water and we've only got tank water for the house. That makes irrigation pretty much impossible. Occasionally when I'm doing a variety trial with something that's like valuable and hard to replace, I'll do a little bit of hand watering just to stop things from, from dying. But I, with zero input agriculture, my aim is to grow crops with no irrigation. And we don't have a particularly dry climate. If you look at the average, we get like over a, a meter of rain a year, but wow. that's really, really... Yeah, but that's really, really variable. So some very regularly we'll go down to 400 millimetres and have a drought, like no rain for nine months. At other times we'll have really wet years. And for, for instance, last summer, was it last summer or the one before? In a one, in a three-day period, we had over a metre of rain. And that, that, was, that, that was on top of nine months of like nonstop rain and mud. So it swings every 10 years or so, El Nino swings back and forth in Australia. And we've got other oceans around us that change their mind as to whether they're bringing rain. So it's it's a very challenging climate. It's probably one of the reasons why conventional agriculture didn't emerge in Australia, because you just can't predict year to year what's going to happen. So you mentioned that you're doing zero input agriculture. Mm-hmm. So you're not importing nitrogen or phosphorus. Nope, nope. Everything has to come from the farm. And I'm lucky I'm lucky that I've got the room to do that. So for the crops that benefit from having a bit more nutrition, I've got the goats that produce manure, which is just a waste product. And I also cut branches for the goats regularly, and I burn that to make charcoal, so biochar. That's really the only soil amendment that improves texture in the long run. If you make compost here and dig it in, in six months' time, it's completely vanished. It just evaporates, and then the soil, the clay, collapses, and it ends up worse than it started. So I only do top dressing now. So, so one of the most fascinating things that I've heard you talk about is plants' relationship with nitrogen. Oh you, yes, you take and discuss that just, just briefly. So this is something that I picked up from John Kempf at Regenerative Agriculture. I think is his. Oh, what is his podcast? Anyway, John Kempf is the, is the person who's been pushing this idea. So 
a really good analogy, and I learned this from growing extreme desert plants when I was collecting succulents, is plants from those regions, when you give them too much water, they can't control how much they absorb. So these little tiny succulent bodies will just swell and swell and swell until they split themselves open because in their natural habitat, they never get enough water for that to be a problem. The same thing happens with most plants and nitrogen. So when there's nitrogen in the soil, they'll absorb and absorb and absorb it as much as they can because it's usually a limiting nutrient, but they can't always use it quickly enough to actually build tissues. So the nitrogen can accumulate in the sap as free amino acids, and that's like rocket fuel for insects because that's what they need to, to grow and reproduce. And I've seen this time and time again, I'll have a crop that's doing fine and I'll put a bit of extra nitrogen on it, some form, form of fertilizer, thinking that I'm doing it a favor. And literally the next day, the leaf eating beetles will turn up and defoliate it or the, the sap sucking insects arrive. And um, it, ha it happens naturally as well. So a few years ago, we had a really strange run of like low rumbly lightning storms and everything, you know, everything goes green after some storms. That's nitrogen that comes from the lightning. So we had a run of this and every, all the plants around the area were just brimming with too much nitrogen. And we had plague after plague after plague of like 10 different species of butterflies, just clouds and clouds and clouds of butterflies everywhere. So I now view pests as a, it's like a pressure release valve for the ecosystem. When the plants are getting out of balance, that's when the pests move in and they rebalance things. Yeah, well, I, I've noticed when I pour people's gardens and they ask me, what's wrong with my plants? Often it's over fertilization. And I never had a mechanism other than to say, oh, you're putting too much fertilizer on it. But now I, now, I have sort of an an idea of how to how to approach that with them. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So thank you for that. Yeah, and and imbalances and trace elements are a big issue as well. Uh -huh. But it's funny. I think that depends much more on your native soil, except for the really really rare trace elements where you could add a little bit and go from deficiency to excess within like one application if you're not careful. Mm -hmm. But like with me, with the calcium and the magnesium balance being strange. I did calculations, like I can add all of the lime that I want and the amount you would have to add to actually change it. But the, the, the subsoil goes down meters. So there's no way that you can add enough to change that. So you're better off just finding the plants that like what you've got. Yeah, I, I have a super high calcium soil, super high pH, and there's no way I can change 100 meters worth of soil. Yeah. So I don't even try it's easier to adjust the genetics of the plants. So what kind of pests do you have there that, that uh, cause troubles for your breed? I don't do any insect pest control. The only major insect pest we have is a local pod sucking bug that gets on legumes when they're forming. And there, there's not much you can do about that other than adjust your varieties. So I've been collecting lima beans as a staple legume because they mostly pod late enough in autumn that the populations have dropped. Mm -hmm. um, and I've been doing work breeding sword beans lately too, because one of those has really thick, heavy pods that mature through the winter and it seems to be resistant as well. So yeah, just not fighting the insects. The vertebrate pests are probably a big issue. So we've got rats and bandicoots that just come in out of the weedy paddocks. So growing tubers is quite hard. Uh, a, ba a bandicoot is a little rabbit-like <laughs> marsupial. So it, okay. it's all kind of it's all kind of a zoo here. They dig up a lot of tubers. Like cassava is something I've tried growing here, and even high cyanide strains of cassava, they just rip it to pieces. So rather than like struggling with any of that, I'm just giving up on cassava and growing other things. We also have lots and lots of bird pressure. So we've got clouds of finches. We've got like multiple species of parrots. And I've trialed every grain that you can imagine. And almost all of them have been a complete disaster. The only one that I've managed to get going reliably is a strain of maize that, so it's a bit of a story, but I managed to find a local government run seed database. And I got like a dozen different species of white maize because I'd read that they'd grown in similar climates around the world as a staple crop. And I didn't like I didn't know what I was looking for. I just grabbed all the white varieties because I've read that's what people in lowland South America grow. 
And I grew them all. And they were right next to a tree that had nesting lorikeets and parrots in it. And I watched which varieties got attacked by the parrots and the ones that did okay. And the next year I only planted the varieties that were somewhat resistant. And every year since I've been only saving seeds from the corn cobs that don't get any parrot damage. And I now have a, a resistant strain. But it's kind of sad because we we can't we have major quarantine restrictions in Australia for importing seed. So maize seed, I can't import from overseas. Beans, anything big, I can't import in case it's got weevils in it. There's only a few crops that are relatively easy to import. They tend to be small seeds and things that don't have a big commercial interest. So quinoa, for example, is one that I can get away with importing. So I'm hoping to do some work with that soon. But anyway, this seed database that the government ran got sold to a private company the year afterwards. So if I ever wanted to recreate the strain, it's basically impossible at this point. So I'm I'm really careful to preserve it and share it with anyone who I think is going to like keep it going. Thank you. So when you when you think about your priorities in crop breeding, do you have a list or is it all in your head? What are what are your priorities? Let me think. So it, it's mostly about finding things that produce reliably under my conditions. And I'm very opportunistic with the, the particularly the change in the rainfall. So when we get a nine month drought, I'm actually, I kind of enjoy it because I get a break. I'm, I'm really jealous of people in temperate climates because you get a holiday every year when it, when it snows and frosts here in the subtropics, it just never stops <laughs> until every few years you get a drought and you're like, Oh my God, I can finally catch up with everything. So the annual crops that I grow, like the vegetables, tend to be things that are semi-perennial and that produce opportunistically whenever the rain arrives. So it's only getting them going, getting them germinated and established, I have to do during times when the rain comes. So this year, for example, normally we get the most reliable rains in autumn, but we had a really dry autumn. So I just put off planting all of my crops until pretty much now we're in the middle of winter and I'm just getting some varieties started. So what else? I do have a big emphasis on staple crops as well. So this is the home of permaculture. Like it kind of came from Australia and there's a lot of permaculture people around, but they tend to focus on fruit and vegetables and not a lot of emphasis on staple crops. And I can see the reason for doing that. The, the payoff for growing veggies is much higher than growing staple crops, but I'm looking further forward into the future where people may need to be growing more of their diet and the bulk of that is your starches your, your, your grains your tubers and yeah finding varieties of those that can produce reliably when you've got such a crazy climate is a bit of a challenge but I'm, I'm starting to make progress I, th I think I'm going to get there so are there what kinds of projects are you working on to to get there <laughs> so the biggest staple crop that i've had success with is canna edulis in the local area it used to be grown small scale commercially in like the late 1800s as queensland arrowroot and we actually have a biscuit that's made locally called the arrowroot biscuit which was originally made from arrowroot flour now it's made from like one percent arrowroot flour but it's a different species that's grown in south america and they import it so yeah, back in the day, it was one of the few crops. They used to extract the starch from the tubers and then send it back to England, where it was mostly used for starching collars. But yeah, it's an unusual crop because it's very easy to extract the starch from the tubers and it's very, very pest resistant. It grows up to three meters tall if you've got the right varieties and the tubers are like the size of your arm and they actually grow along the surface of the soil. So that makes harvesting without digging all the soil up really easy. And if you so can extract canna edulis, it's originally from Peru. It's one of the really old crops from Peru that kind of fell out of favor when better crops came along. The Peruvian name is Achira, A-C-H-I-R-A. It's also grown as an ornamental in frost-free areas. So it gets these big rubbery leaves and kind of pretty hummingbird pollinated flowers. But yeah, it's it's unusually useful in this climate because it grows on really crappy soil. Once it's established, it can tolerate droughts. It can tolerate being underwater. It, the original species come from swamps that periodically dry out and catch fire. So it's equally happy on fire and underwater, which is perfect for Australia. So, so is, that a, is that a species that's native to Australia? No, no, no. It's originally from Peru. 
So, uh, <laughs> yeah, 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 no, that's right. So I started with the old Queensland arrowroot clone, which like a lot of clones, it's, it's been propagated vegetatively for probably thousands of years. It's lost most of its fertility. You almost never see it set seeds and it's probably accumulated viruses and all sorts of other issues that have just made it not great. So I collected seed of other species from mostly from a botanist in the UK that I just found on the internet and the best species from him is one called Canna Alton Steinii. That's the one that grows to three meters tall. Like it's taller than my banana trees and it's just massive. So I managed to figure out how to hybridize that with the Queensland Arrowroot strain so that I could mix some of the superior um, productive traits from the Queensland Arrowroot with the vigor of the wild species, which was probably the original ancestor or one of the parents of the Queensland Arrowroot. And so what's your selection strategy for this? What, um, what are you looking for in the long term? Yeah, so I did that original hand crossing. It took me a couple of years to get them lined up. I had all sorts of fun and games trying to get them because you can't store the pollen of this species. They, they just die as soon as they're produced. Some other species you can like put them in the freezer if you store them carefully and you'll get some pollination out of it, but canna, absolutely not. So yeah, that first generation of F1 hybrids, I grew out in the vegetable garden and the tubers were amazing. They were more vigorous than the original Queensland arrowroot. And I then, but that was a slightly richer environment than I wanted to like put them through their tests in. So next I took tubers off those original seedlings and put them out in a, in a paddock with like no fertilizer, no weeding, no, like absolutely no attention. And just did a mass planting of them. I think that was like a third of an acre and that's still growing. It's like, I, I go and wait around and it's over my head most of the year. And from that, I went and looked for the ones that had the best quality tubers. And I brought them back into the vegetable garden to develop the next round of seed to, to start doing some hand crossing again. But it's interesting. What I'm going to do next is actually... The most promising clones, I want to look at the starch yield in them because I have to be careful if I just select for the biggest tubers, I might end up ones with really low starch levels. So I'm going to have to figure out how to do starch assays. So that's next on my list of things to do. So do you, eat, do you eat the tubers? Well, it's interesting. So cassava is like 40% starch and potatoes are about 20% starch. Canna is only about 5% starch. So if you cook these and like bite into them, I, I don't know if you've seen those low carb potatoes. It might just be an Australian thing, <laughs> but like for people with diabetes, you can have like low carb, like what's the point? So when you bite, like I have seen some people cook whole canna tubers. I've even like grated them up and had them fried with bacon and they're okay, but they're like a low carb option. Like when you eat them as a whole tuber, it's it's kind of your brain's going like there's something missing here like you're expecting more i suspect they might have a defense chemical in them as well because i often when i eat them i get this feeling afterwards that was okay but i never want to eat it ever again so where <laughs> they where they really shine though is so canna produces the largest starch grains of any plant so if you grate up the tubers in water all the starch grains just sink to the bottom and you can take all of the pulp off and then dry the starch really easily. Even when it's humid and pouring outside, the starch will dry. And once you have that dry starch, it's incredibly easy to store. So when I produce a like a maize crop and I want to store that after a few years, the eating quality of it goes down because it starts going rancid. You, the insects might get into it. But when you have pure starch, nothing touches it as long as you keep it dry. And you can add that, you can bake with it in Southeast Asia. They grow canna up in the mountains when the soil is too thin for rice. And they've got an industry that makes cellophane noodles out of starch. So there's a lot of things you can do with it. And the plant itself is a perennial. So once you've got it established, it's there permanently. So I see it as being a really useful crop as a famine food. And if you look at traditional agricultural systems, they had a fallback when the main staple crop failed there was something else that they could eat that usually wasn't the best thing on the menu, but when there was nothing else, it kept them alive. And yeah, I'm really keen to share these hybrid canna seeds all around the world in places where they have spaces that have poor soil where they normally don't do much with them. They could establish canna on that area and use it as a fallback during bad times. 
Do you have an idea of what the winter hardiness of the canna is? Is there a miniature uh, temperature they can endure? Yeah, I would guess probably zone eight. You could get away with them. Uh -huh. I did swap, I'd swap some of my seeds to someone in the US who grew them out over winter. And they said my hybrid varieties survived when all of their original ones would die. So even though I'm not selecting for it, there seems to be some cold hardiness in there. I've got someone in Canada, was it, who's trying to see if they can develop them as an annual crop to actually plant them in the spring from seed and get a get a harvest by the end oh, before that, the frost. That would be beautiful. Yeah. Mm. So you mentioned earlier that you're working with some nut trees. Yes. Um, I, I read that you work with bana. Is yes, that a, yeah. even the right word? <laughs> yeah, that's the correct. Yep, that's the that's the original <laughs> Aboriginal name for this species. So I don't know if you've seen photos of this thing, but it gets a cone on it. It's a conifer tree that gets a cone the size of a basketball with these spikes all over it, like these huge spines. And they come crashing down out of the trees. You have to be careful when you go into a stand of these <laughs> um, at harvest time that you wait for like most of them to fall. But that said, I've I've looked and looked and I can only find one reference of a six-year-old woman in a botanic garden had one of these fall on her shoulder and give her a, a bit of a, a bit of a scare. So yeah, maybe it's not quite so bad. You don't you don't want to you don't want to park your car under them, that's for sure. So inside that giant cone, there are starchy nuts about the size of a chestnut or a bit bigger. And yeah, it's it's an amazing hardy tree. It grows everywhere from the tropics, so up in Cairns, all the way down to Tasmania on the coast. And the I'm in the middle of the remnant diversity of Banya. So I've got nice. old remnant trees all around me. And a lot of these trees are no longer producing seedlings anymore. So if you go out to the old trees, there's no small trees underneath them anymore, probably because of introduced rats or changes in land management. So that genetic diversity, fast forward another hundred years, it's going to be gone. So I've done field trips all over the southeast corner here to collect that wild diversity. I got some seed from a remnant population in Cairns up in the tropics too. And yeah, I actually, early in, when I first got this farm, I got in contact with Mark Shepherd from Restoration Agriculture. And uh, you, you know his work, like doing mass selection on chestnuts and hazels and all these kind of things. And I got really excited. It's like, oh, I can grow chestnuts. I can grow hazels. Because like there's subtropical genetics for them as well too. But we don't have it in Australia and we can't import it. So I'm like, oh, what am I going to do? I've, I've got a few chestnut trees and they're doing okay, but I think they're always going to be a bit marginal here with the genetics I have. So yeah, I contacted him, contacted Mark Shepherd, and he said, look for local species that you can use. And I'm like, I looked around and I saw the bunyas and I knew how long they took to mature. They take about 15 years to start fruiting from seed. <laughs> and I was kind of reluctant to take it on. And then I realized what other person has the interest and the stable land, like enough land to do this, and is right next to the the populations and has the time left. Like I've got enough time to do at least one generation of this project. So I'm like, okay, I guess it's going to be me. If it's not me, it's who else is going to do it? But the really interesting thing is when a species is domesticated, it's usually through a hybridization event. And there's an example of this that happened right on my doorstep. So the macadamia nut is from this area, the local, not far from here, the wild species grow. And about a hundred years ago, a amateur plant collector got two of these different species and grew them side by side in their tree collection. And they hybridized. And that hybrid population is the foundation for this multi-million dollar macadamia industry, completely by accident. Like he didn't set out to do it. He was just interested in these native species. So... The way I see it, Bunya probably has to go through the same process of a wide cross, a hybridization. And from that hybrid swarm, that's where the, the varieties that are going to be suitable for working with humans are going to come from. So I looked around and it's like, what can I hybridize these Bunyas with? Like I can get as much local diversity, but they're all fairly closely related. And it turns out that Australia and South America and South Africa were all connected to each other long ago through Antarctica when all the continents were moved around, it's called the Gondwanan form of flora. So in South America, in Southern Brazil, that has almost identical climate to us, there's another species related to Banya called the piranha pine. 
and it has large nuts that the people, the native people there used to eat and it's endangered in its habitat. And I managed through hook and crook to draw together some of these piranha pine seeds and now they're being planted in amongst my diverse bunya plantation. I'm really lucky that piranha pines have separate males and females because these are a wind pollinated species. So like the idea of getting up on a cherry picker and like trying to catch them, it's just not (laughs) going to work. It's like, but luckily the piranha pines have separate males and females. So it's going to break my heart, but when the piranha pines start flowering, I'm going to have to cull the males so that only the female piranha pines are left and they'll be surrounded by like hyper diverse bunyas. So all of the seeds coming off the piranha pines will be hybrids. And the plan is, I'll probably be in my late 60s or early 70s by this stage, if a, if a bunya nut hasn't hit me in the head and killed me, the plan is to send these hybrid seeds all over the world. Anyone who is interested in growing them out and starting to select for probably early maturity would be the first trait that you'd be looking for. If you can start getting cones in 10 years rather than 20 years, that's probably the, the make or break difference to this becoming a, a crop. Um, and it's an amazing treat. Like you can grow it in amongst livestock. So the paddocks where my goats are, I've direct sowed bunyas and they're doing fine. They love it. And the goats eat around them because they've got leaves like barbed wire, like nothing wants to touch them. How big are the, how big are the cones? I'm uh, looking co- at the picture online and I, the seeds look similar to pine nuts that we, that we buy here, but yeah, I'm gonna, I'm, I can't I'm, get a, <laughs> is it as big as your head or smaller? So the cones are about the size of a basketball, sometimes a bit bigger, sometimes a bit smaller, they they vary a bit. And the individual seeds are a bit bigger than a chestnut. Wow. So yeah, they're they're, they're convenient to handle. Nice. So so if you could work wonders with any species, what would it be? Oh, that's an interesting question. Let me think. I, I do have a really wild out there project i don't have the right soil for it but i'm at least trying so again there's another native crop here which i've looked at it i've looked at how the aborigines are supposed to have used it and i'm like why aren't we doing more with this so i don't know if you have these much in the states it's a native plant called grevillea often grows into a shrub with these big yellow or red flowers that the birds drink nectar out of and it's a hyper diverse genus there's like 300 species and they all hybridize with each other So the Aborigines used to harvest the nectar from the flowers. You can actually just bang the flowers and the nectar comes out of them. And I've looked at that and it's like, why do we grow sugarcane where you have to cut the stems and crush them in machines to get the nectar out when it just falls out of this plant? So I would love to see a transformation of grevillea into a a nectar producing, like a sugar species. And it's funny, like you look at, there's a whole lot of plants that have nectaries for ants. So mm-hmm. ants actually protect the trees or the, the shrubs from being attacked by other insects because they there's these little lumps that secrete nectar for the ants. And there's no reason why other plants couldn't do that for humans, that we couldn't have a plant that's actually designed to give us the sugar instead of, instead of us needing to like strangle it out of the poor plant. So yeah, that would be my that would be my ideal, but I'm I'm not on the yeah yeah yeah. There's there's a perennial too. So yeah, I'm not on the ideal soil for that. Most of the genus don't like growing on, under my conditions. They tend to be a bit like when we get a lot of rain on that clay, they just drop dead. I'm I'm tink I'm tinkering with it, but it's an idea that I'm putting out into the universe. They grow really well in California, I think, um, probably Texas too. So anyone in those areas, if you're like, oh, that sounds like a, a, a crazy kind of project I could get into. Yeah, give, there you go, give, give it some, yeah, give <laughs> it some thought. Give it some thought. Because, yeah, they, they hybridize like crazy. They're, they're just one of these species that just loves to transform their, their biology. Yeah. So if you, if, if you think about the future there in Australia, what's your hopes and dreams for your community and their food system? So. Australia is a bit of an odd case because we went pretty much straight from hunter-gatherer to industrial agriculture. There there was almost no pre-industrial agricultural sustainable food system. I mean, you can look a little bit to like them running herds of sheep all over the country and just eating everything, but that collapsed ecosystems too, like it wasn't sustainable. 
So yeah, particularly when it comes to stable crops, we're at a disadvantage. I'm really jealous of people in Europe or North America or Asia. Like they just have to look back a few hundred years and try and preserve what was, you know, there might be little bits of things that are hanging on. In Australia, we kind of have to reinvent the wheel if we're thinking about preparing for a post-industrial future. So yeah, my my main aim is to bring together a, a suite of crop species that work together that can sustain my local community if they ever had to feed themselves. And I'm I'm very sympathetic to the fact that there's no reason for them to do that today. So you just need weirdos like me to just kind of take on these projects, you know, a generation in advance of when they might actually be needed and just gather and filter and steward and be ready to share it when people are ready to receive it. And and so how, how do you envision passing your work on to future generations? Ah, uh, so I'm a bit of a hermit. And I think you have to be to do this kind of project. Like most of the time I'm out in the paddocks on my own. I love podcasts. Podcasts are amazing. They, they keep me company and keep, keep my brain engaged while I'm doing that. But yeah, I'm not particularly good at reaching out to the local community. We do have a pretty thriving permaculture community here. And I've, I've tried to be involved with it, but it's mostly people growing vegetables in relatively intensive ways which I'm like, I, I try and like say, have you tried using a hoe? And like, there's other ways you can do things, but you know, people kind of get set in their ways. And I, I, I understand that it's, it's, it's fine. I'm, I'm a bit allergic to like mulch and newspaper as being the way to grow. It's like, where it, it's funny though, like this paper, this newspaper, like it's this waste product that's just everywhere at the moment. You go back 200 years, how precious was paper? Like it, it's like using gold leaf to suppress your weeds. So yeah, I find that really amusing. So, and I don't know, like when you learn to, when you get a good quality hoe, which is actually really hard to find these days, most of the ones you buy in the shop are absolute crap. Like they're unusable, they're unusable. So when you find a good quality hoe and you learn how to maintain and use it, and you learn all of your weeds so that you know when they need hoeing and when you can like say, oh, no, I'll leave them a bit longer. That is so much easier than like hauling, you know, truckloads of mulch around to stop the weeds growing. And the weeds do good for the soil if you let them grow enough and then push them back. Anyway, I'm, I'm getting on a, on a hobby horse there. Anyway, so <laughs> my plan is as I get older, and I can do less physical work on the farm. And I'm mostly just waiting for the trees to do their thing. That's when I'm planning on doing more community engagement. And I suspect that the, the value of my kind of approach to gardening will be more apparent as time goes on. So yeah, I'm just going to make sure I keep, keep my fingers out in the community and just bide my time. Because yeah, I'm a big believer in timing, like, like with planting when the rain comes. You can you know, get out all the hoses and the pumps and like force the water into the soil when you're in the middle of a drought, or you can just wait for it to rain. And my strategy is just to wait for the right time to come along for me to, to share my work. But I'm, I'm very enthusiastic about sending my seeds to anyone in the world who is interested in them, particularly the Canna project. So I hear that you're also working with stored beans. Can you tell us oh, a little yes. bit about that project? Yes, yeah. So I I had been growing the the large pink seeded sword bean and encephalia for years. And it's a it's a very, very hardy species. I found out recently its original place of domestication in Central America, it's grown on the edge of cultivated areas and it just runs up a tree. So it's kind of like a a zone three or four kind of staple legume. And I grew it that way in like my weedy abandoned gardens. And I'm like, yeah, it's kind of interesting, but I don't know what to do with it. And the seeds are a little bit toxic. You have to be a bit careful how you prepare them. And it's one of those things that it's funny. You often, you start growing a completely new crop and you don't know what to do with it. Like if you just gave someone a potato and they bit into it, they'd be pretty disappointed. And like, there's a whole food culture that goes along with knowing what to do with a particular crop. And when you're coming from a European cultural background and then having to grow crops from like Central America and Asia and Africa, 
it takes a bit of time to figure out what to do with them. And I still haven't completely figured out what to do with the, the sword beans, but I'm getting there. And one of the things that's made me more determined to do that is I stumbled upon two other species. So there's also Enciformis, which has big white seeds, and I don't know, which is basically a wild variety from Papua New Guinea, which is, again, kind of grown on the edge of people's farms and used as a bit of a minor vegetable. So once I had those three species on hand, I'm like, well, I can cross these. I, I can mix them up and see if I can come up with something that's more diverse and more suited to my conditions. Because I have lots of hills and orchards and hedgerows all over the place. And what I would really love is a legume that I can just sow in those positions. It takes care of itself if, if I found exactly the right spot for it. And then I come back, you know, nine months later and harvest the dry seeds. And if it's, this is my ideal crop, basically. All you have to do is plant it and harvest it. There's often a trade-off involved. Usually there's more processing required. So in the case of the sword beans, the seeds are a bit more toxic than kidney beans. So you have to like crush them up and soak them in water a couple of extra times before you cook them. Same with the canner. You can basically plant it and forget it. And you can't just cook it like a potato. You have to do a bit of processing to get the starch out of it. But the trade-off is you end up with a crop that doesn't need any protection from pests it, it, because it's got those defense mechanisms built into it that you can deal with later in the kitchen. I mean, I think this I think this still happens with potatoes in Peru. There's varieties that are really high in alkaloids that you have to go through a fairly complicated process to make them edible, but they grow in the places where none of the other easy-to-eat potatoes grow. So people often will have both varieties, and during bad years, only the more toxic potatoes will produce a harvest. So it gives them something to fall right. back on. So we're coming up on the end of the hour. Does anyone else have questions they'd like to ask from of Shane? Oh, I, I should mention for people in America, my climate is most similar to Northern Florida or East Texas. There's meant to be a more East human Texas. side of Texas. Yeah. A, a lot of things that I see growing in Texas gardens when I look at photographs, it's like, oh yeah, we've got them here too. All right. Well, can you tell us about your work with any questions, anybody? No? Jump in. I think I saw some people talking, but they might be muted. So, yeah. Ray, I think you have a question, don't you? Uh, I don't really have any questions because you've answered most of them, Shane. Thanks. <laughs> oh, it's Ray. Hello. <laughs> yes. Hello there. And I'm, I'm Jane. Shane. Hello. Hi. I was I'm very looking... interested here in your Bunya project because we do have Bunya pines around Armadale as well. Maybe we could oh, swap some yes. seeds or something. Absolutely, absolutely. When we get a good year and I go out and harvest from remnant trees, I usually end up with seed left over. And yeah. I, I love sending that out to people in other areas. Because, yeah, we've yeah. got all sorts of... It's funny, when I first started this project, I'm like, oh, they won't be that diverse. They're going to be really inbred and they're all going to look the same. And when I actually went out to these trees, I was astonished at how different they all were. And it, it's a resource that's only going to be there for so long, the way things are going. So yeah. you have to spread it around. And a lot of the trees you see planted, they've come from forestry projects. So the, the timber industry tried to select bunyas for like wood production and then kind of gave mm -hmm. up on it. And I think most of the trees you see in parks and gardens came from that stock. So it's all, yeah. that's, where the, that's where the inbreeding happened. Yeah. I haven't had much look, luck with direct seeding them. Can you tell me how you did it? How deep did you put them in and did you do follow-up watering or...? No, yeah, not on 40 years with a, with a watering can. So I basically just buried them about five to 10 centimetres down, probably put about three or four in each hole. The, here's the thing, like the success rate from that was probably five to 10%. Um. So with a variable climate that will vary year to year, some years you might yeah. get 100%, a lot of years you'll get 0%. And you might feel like you're wasting your time on the years that it doesn't work and you should just grow them in a pot and transplant them. And do but you have a sense of whether it's the wet years or the dry years they prefer? It's hard to it's hard to generalise. And I don't think I've done it often enough to really say. But yeah, I was about to say, when you've only got a small amount of seed and it's really precious, it makes sense to grow it in a pot and coddle it a little bit. And I do this with vegetables too. Like if I buy a, a weird variety of pumpkin and I've only got three seeds... I'm going to germinate those in, in a pot yeah, and transplant absolutely. them and water them to give them a chance to at least give me some more seed back and like 
get the ball yeah. rolling. Have such a weird germination thing where they yeah. kind of pull the seed down to the bottom of the pot, though. So you yeah, totally transplanted? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I've got articles on my Substack or my old WordPress, which won't be up for much longer, where I, I talk about how I do that. But I'll, if I send you seeds, I'll, I'll give you lots of instructions. But yeah, I was about to say, if you've got like buckets of seeds spare, and often when you start doing breeding, you very end, very quickly end up with more seed than you know what to do with. That's when you can shift to doing the direct sowing. And when you actually weigh up how much time it takes to just walk through the field and like poke a shovel in the ground versus planting in pots and watering every week and then digging holes and transplanting and it's so much less work to do direct sowing as long as you've got the seed to spare and you're prepared for it to take a few years before you get lucky and the conditions are just right. Mm. I mean, in, in the wild, a lot of tree species only successfully recruit seedlings like once a century when the conditions are just perfect for them. So you, you shouldn't expect it to be, you know, instant success. Mm. Okay. Um, I think you said you were interested in my Tubalgia breeding as well. Yes. Yep. Yeah, I was. Yeah. I'll, I'll definitely make sure you get either some seedlings or some divisions. It depends on how much of a rush you're in. Um, no, no rush. <laughs> no rush. So, so for the rest of the listeners, Tubalgia is a South African relative of onions that grows in a little perennial clump of evergreen leaves that you can eat like garlic chives. And it's often called society garlic. I think it's often grown in like Southern US in the frost-free zones as an ornamental, but it's edible as well. And it has a history of being eaten in South Africa. So, and it's a really good example of what to look for in a species that has potential for further breeding. So the genus has about a dozen species in it. There is evidence of hybridization. The ornamental growers have done some hybrids and released them under like, you know, cheesy names that they do to get people interested. And it has some history of being used as an edible. So I looked at that and it's like, well, I've grown garlic chives, but they only produce in the summer when there's rain. And that's not that useful to me. Like they're taking up space when they're dormant the rest of the year. So maybe this tubalgia has potential to fill that niche more effectively and be a perennial evergreen garlic chive. And I've eaten the ones that I've grown, the original species, and they're okay. They're a little bit more acrid than garlic chives. So I can see potential to start doing breeding with them. So I gathered together three different species and I started figuring out how to hand pollinate them when they when the flowering coincided. And I've sowed those first batches of seeds in pots and I've just transplanted those hybrids out into the vegetable garden and they're establishing well. So by autumn, I should have some idea about their potential and I'll be selecting them based on the flavor of the leaves and maybe I'll look out for some that have a swollen base because I could be able to like split the population into a leaf crop and a root crop because onions and garlic just hate it here. Like I've just given up trying to grow them completely. <laughs> so it would be nice to have something that can produce a, a, a kind of shallot kind of tuber. Thank you for joining us today, Shane. It's been wonderful. Could you, could you tell us a little bit about how to get hold of you? And oh, absolutely. say something before you go about your book, if you would. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Okay, so I substack, sorry, I blog on substack about every week. Sometimes that varies if I get caught up with other things. But yeah, my, my farming blog is Zero Input Agriculture at Substack. So the, the link should be available and you can sign up for that and you'll get a, an email reminder every time I, I drop. Holly put a link to that in the chat comments. Brilliant, brilliant. Yeah, that's, that's really blown advertising, up. Advertising, we put put a link to that, so check that. And yeah, if you want to support what I'm doing, Substack is a great place to do that because I'm I'm not working. I'm I'm farming full time. I'm very lucky to have a partner who like gets bored when they're at home all day, so they go off to pay the bills. Again, just I'm so lucky and blessed to have this opportunity that I feel like I have to do something for the world that I can give back. So. That's my nonfiction. I do a little bit of short fiction in my Substack at two from time to time. But as a, so I burnt out on farming a couple of years ago. Like this was just before COVID or in the middle of COVID. And I'm just like, okay, I just need a mental break from it. I can't take a physical holiday because of the goats. So I decided to write fiction instead. And the idea behind it was, so I'm a bit of a doomer, at least in terms of industrial civilization. I think it's got an expiry date. 
somewhere out in the future. I don't claim to know exactly where or how that's going to happen. But it got me thinking about like what kind of civilization could come back after the end of industrial civilization. And to me, the only truly renewable resource is biology. So I've created a future, I've explored a future where human civilization rises again, built purely on biological technology. So everything that you would do with metal and, and tools and um, that kind of cobbled together ingenuity, this society does with living things. And I've seen a lot of biology incorporated into science fiction where you've got the robots and, you know, the, the squishy brain inside it at the same time. I've never seen books that just do the biology and get rid of all of the other, you know, bells and whistles and gizmos. So yeah, that's, that's out as Our Vitreous Womb as an ebook. It's broken into four novellas, but it's just recently been released as paperback and as ebook in all together. So you can support me through that as well, if that sounds interesting. All right. Thank you. So we have one last question that's sneaking in just under the wire. How many total species are you working with? <laughs> so this is actually an interesting point. So when I first started, it was basically throw everything at the wall that you can possibly get your hands on. So those early phases, I was juggling so many different things, but it was basically just get them in the ground, see what they do and take it from there. And often I would have something do really well for the first year because the conditions were just perfect for it. And then every year after that, it failed. So you have to be, until you really grow something for like 10, 20 years through all the ups and downs, you don't really know what that species can offer you. So that's important. Anyway, so when I reached that burnout point, the one of the things I did is I looked through all of the species that I was juggling and said, which of these is actually worth growing? And I shrunk my vegetables down to about 10, five in the summer, five in the winter, which is enough for all my meals. Uh -huh. um, the staple crops, I think I've shrunk down to about half a dozen, probably half a dozen grains. And the tree crops all up, the fruits and the nuts is probably about a dozen as well. And they're the ones that actually without me having to stress and fuss and worry. They just love it here. You, you just have to put them in the ground and get out of the way. Very nice. So it's been a pleasure, Shane. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. you to Julia and Anna for the technical support that, and for Holly. <laughs> and so looking forward to continued interactions with you as, as we move forward through our lives and through civilization. <laughs> Brilliant. I feel like I found a home here. I'm, I'm really, really, really keen to get involved with going to seed and, and land race gardening. Thank you. Thank you so 